have the text here as well uh, for you. Uh, and then I'll, I'll read this text and then we can pray and, and just give some uh, heart preparation for the message, some reflection on what we just heard as well. But Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at the first 19 verses here. And this is the last in our series on life-changing encounters with God that we've been kind of looking at really for the past two months leading up to this Sunday, Sunday evening uh, and this Sunday morning as well. So let's take a look at this together, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And here's how it reads. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. It did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, this is the word of God. Father, we pray now that we would be attentive to this word, that it would serve its purpose. We thank you for already hearing about how your hand of grace has been at work in, in our lives. We pray for those who as yet do not see. We pray for Barb, that you would open blind eyes and give her sight. And we thank you for those who've been able to see uh, and have shared already of the way that they came to a point in life where they had a spiritual birth into your kingdom. And we pray humbly and ask 
with conviction that you would continue to help us to live our faith in action and in deed and not just in word. We thank you that that is the intent and design of your word itself. It's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates and it divides joint and marrow. And Father, we pray now that you would look into our hearts and let it do its work in us, this living and active word, and move us toward a deeper faith. And may we be able to say truly, along with Paul, that to live is Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why have we been doing this series? Uh, And let me give you an idea of why I think we've been doing this. Just three reasons. And really, as we heard these stories of grace, it reinforced uh, exactly why we've been doing this. I mean, one of the reasons we've taken these nine weeks to to look at people's stories in the Bible who've really encountered uh, God is to give you a chance to reflect on how God has changed your life. How, how is it if you're somebody who always who would already say, yeah, for me to live as Christ, that your commitment, uh, what you want in the center as we keep using that idea of, of a wheel with spokes going out everywhere, what's the hub in the center? You said at one time that's Christ. You want to keep him in the center too. How is it that he has changed your life? Some people have had the chance to share uh, from up front. Uh, others never got that opportunity. But it's a good good opportunity to look back and say, how, how have I been changed? And so hopefully you've been able to do that just a bit as well. Uh, another reason is to remind you that God is not done changing your life. And Pete, you teed it up so nicely. Wasn't that great? You know, Philippians 1.6 is probably a verse you know. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the Hi, day Darby. of Christ Jesus. So we, we, we understand and know that he is continuing to work. He's not done. It's not as if there was just a, a one-time experience, perhaps you can point down to in the distant past. He is continuing to work. And he's more committed to you than you could ever be to him as well. And the proof positive in that is that he was faithful to the end. And then the third reason we've looked at this is to remind you that God can change anyone's life. It feels like a theme that we come across from time to time, actually quite consistently, as we've been looking at these people, these stories in the Bible, a lot of these uh, people who encounter God are un, unlikely candidates for life change. They're, um, they're deceivers, uh, they're liars, um, they're cheats. And so, some, some people have had just very ordinary lives too, and God, but God can change anyone. Uh, somebody who's a, a refugee uh, and just looking for some food or somebody, as we come across this text, who actually hates people who are embracing the very faith he'll lay his life down for. That's the Apostle Paul. We call him Paul because his name is later changed. So if I say Paul, I'm thinking Saul, although in this text it's mostly Saul. So we'll try to stick with that. There's something unique about this account. Nobody else is Saul on the way to Damascus to persecute believers. And yet there's this universal principle that we see again and again In the scriptures, God is in the business of changing hearts and changing lives 
period. It doesn't matter who you are. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's pursuing grace. And that's what we see in the first nine verses. It gives God glory, but it also tells us from a human perspective, nobody is beyond hope. And I, I know for a fact you can probably think of people immediately, perhaps one was shared about earlier, who you feel like there is no possible way this person could ever be somebody who says to live as Christ. I am 100% on board. My life has completely changed. Well, Saul is a great candidate for that, isn't he? Um, somebody who you, the people of that day, feared for those who said, I'm a follower of Christ. And it wasn't just because he used mean or hurtful words or, you know, put little Facebook posts on the bottom that, that, that felt like a troll who just was trying to destroy your faith. He was actually applying for letters, permission from the government to go and persecute individuals and send them to jail. And when there was a trial that came up about whether or not they should be killed, he said yes. At the beginning of this section, in verse 1, Saul's breathing out murderous threats against followers of Jesus. And yet by verse 23, if, if you have your Bibles open, you can see he's boldly declaring his faith, and others are breathing out murderous threats against him, because now he's a follower of Christ. What happened? Well, he encountered God's pursuing grace in the person of the resurrected Savior, Jesus who confronted him on his way to persecuting his children. I mean, this is his own reflection on the encounter from Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. You know, Paul becomes this great church planter. Some of you know Acts 29, church planting network. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Acts 29, church planting network existed exists because they think the church continues expanding. So it's like there's another chapter. We're in that chapter. And in fact, we're in that sense kind of an Acts 29 church, right? We're a church that was planted many years later from what Saul, then becoming Paul, committed his entire life to doing, creating new bodies of believers wherever they may be, no matter where they might be, to be an outpost, a sign that the kingdom of God has arrived. And he would suffer a lot for that. But back here, he wanted other people to suffer. He says this in Galatians 1, 13 to 17, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it, like his job description and mission in life. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. It's interesting phraseology when Paul thinks about what happened. He says on the one hand, in sort of an outside time frame, God set me apart from birth. But at a moment when he was on that road, he was called. How? By his grace. Christ, the one whom he is persecuting, is the one who pursues him. 
It's, he's like the one sheep that's gone astray, and Christ has gone after him. You see Christ's pursuing grace in Saul's encounter with him on the road to Damascus, and that's how Paul took it. I was called by his grace on that road to Damascus. Paul sees in this experience the operation of God's pursuing grace. God revealed Jesus to him. His eyes were blind, but now he can see clearly. Even though he is for a while blind, there's so much of this imagery in the New Testament, especially in the book of John, of people being blind and people who can see. And it's not about physically are you able to see, but spiritually can you see the things of God. And there's this blinding light in, in the middle of the day, have you ever gone spelunking before? Anybody here been in total darkness? Yeah, it's kind of unnerving. You know, you put your hand in front of you and you can't see it. And then you, you just light a little match. You've done that, right? And whoosh, everything comes up. Have you ever tried taking a flashlight out in the middle of the day and helping you to find your lost contact? It didn't work very well, right? Because the, the sun is so bright. This light was so intense, so brilliant, so dazzling in the middle of the day. Brighter even than the sun. You tried staring at the sun, doesn't work very well, right? And this knocked him to the ground. The brilliant, dazzling light of the resurrected Savior, the Son of God, in whose presence, but for the grace of God, we would simply die knocks him to the ground. And now he can finally see, though he's blind. That's conversion. It's not as if God's grace came to him only in that moment, though. God had been pursuing him even earlier. This is a very fascinating scene that happens later in Acts when Paul uh, begins planting churches and then he appears in, in government courts and before kings and, and official people and he, he never shies. He suffers, but he never shies. He's never ashamed of the gospel. He knows it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. And he's going to lay his life down for that reality. And he's before this king at one point, King Agrippa. Listen, listen to what he says to King Agrippa. And he, he looks back on that experience once again, but he adds something different to the experience that's intriguing. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them, he calls himself obsessed with it, that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. I mean, this is Dog the Bounty Hunter, well before those days. He's, he's on a mission, and one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that's new information, right? We didn't see that in the Acts 9 encounter. Apparently, Christ had more to say, and it's that point that he's trying to make. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. 
What does that mean? Well, goats were prods used to direct cattle. You know, you direct them the way you want to go, in the point they're supposed to be. So the picture here is of God's work in his life prodding him toward Jesus. But he was stubborn and unwilling to be led. Christ appears in this blinding light, his life changes, but he said, Christ had been telling me, I've been pursuing you with my grace all these years, and you've been stubborn. You know, Paul, at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, 17, calls himself the worst of sinners. He says, but God showed his unlimited patience in me. That's some of the prodding, those experiences in life when you're encountering God, but you're refusing to admit it. You're refusing to say, okay, he needs to be at the center. And this, this has probably happened to you if you're not a follower of Christ yet. There are moments in your life when all of a sudden you seem incredibly small and you realize in the middle of a storm, perhaps, when you feel like there's, there's got to be something bigger than I am or you're struck with the awe and the wonder of creation. Or you narrowly escape a car accident, and for the first time you start thinking, I could really die. It's no longer theoretical. The death of a loved one, racked over guilt for something that you've done wrong or hidden that you've never told a soul, that keeps coming back to haunt you again and again. You're just wrestling with the meaning of life. Why in the world am I here? Do I matter to anybody? Those are moments when you're being prodded by the pursuing grace of God to a point where you recognize he needs to be in the center. This is why you were designed. This is what you are to live for. This is what's worth laying your life down for. Everything, you are supposed to put me in the hub. That's how I've designed you. No wonder you're riddled and racked with the anxiety and the fear that comes when I'm not in the center. In Psalm 46, even if everything around you should fall away, I'm at peace. Be still and know I am God. And we, we understand that we don't live in that space all the time, but moments like that bring you to a point where you have to say, is there more than this? And Paul, as he looks back on this, Experience doesn't just say it was some blinding light. Yeah, that was kind of the last straw of sorts, but he'd been at work all along. And I just was unwilling to see it until he struck me blind. Basically, Paul gets the spiritual two-by-four upside the head. And you know, some of us too, and for our loved ones who maybe don't understand this yet, pray that prayer that God would be, what do we say, as gentle as possible but as forceful as necessary. That's a scary prayer. The as forceful as necessary part might mean some serious kicking against the goads. And, and if that's the case then, even if you enter into to Saul's experience, maybe he had a chance to reflect on this and see things a little bit differently, not to be undone by them, but to see God's operation of grace in those moments of weakness and concern and, and fear, it's a testimony to God's grace, prodding people toward him. He was convinced 
to do everything he could to oppose the name of Jesus. And now he's laying his life down for him. Those all point us to something beyond us. Like Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Maybe you're kicking against the goads. I don't know. Uh, Sometimes it's more dramatic than others. And some of you have heard me tell stories about Jay, my friend, who was a Brahmin, a high priestly caste in India. His father was priest of uh, of a local assembly there in, in, a, in a temple, and he was expected to follow in his way. He also happened to be a world-renowned parasitologist, a PhD, and he traveled all around the world. His brother um, had converted, uh, had an experience where he came to faith in Christ, and Jay's one goal in life was to make sure that his brother suffered and even died if necessary because he'd brought shame on the family. And Jay's own experience was that God started hounding and pursuing him again and again and again, and he didn't like it at all. And uh, you, can, you can read the account of his, um, and maybe I'll try to attach it, his, his story. Part of it reads, suddenly, as the man spoke the name of Jesus, Jay felt the wrath of God descend upon him. As the Lord brought to his remembrance all the opportunities to accept Jesus, Jay had been given and had refused. He realized that God saw right through his smug self-righteousness and knew him to be a guilty sinner, filthy and hypocritical. Divine angry judgment poured over him. Jay ran from the building enraged because he was wounded and convicted of sin. For the next six months, God pursued him. Every waking moment, Jay was aware of God's wrath upon him. He knew it was the God of the Bible with whom he was dealing. He could not run anywhere to hide from him. Jay wanted to make atonement, but he didn't know how. To appease Hindu gods, one offered correct sacrifices and found peace. So he dug out from a cupboard a dust-covered old Bible that had been given to him, to, to his brother in school some years before, and he began searching for some mantra or incantation that he could use to pacify this god. And as Jay continued searching and, 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 and looking and, 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 and was oppressed and at one point almost committed suicide in Hong Kong, jumping off a building. He called at that moment on the name of Jesus because he knew he couldn't do it on his own, and Christ entered his life. That's how I met Jay. He came over and got trained in, in seminary and had access into the, the mindset of those who were from India, this educated in Glasgow, scientist, has a wonderful ministry. He'd been kicking against the goads. And look, this isn't limited to just these extreme life-altering encounters. There are small scales on which this happens as well. In the Bible, the dramatic just serves as a backdrop for how God works in the more subtle ways of our lives. It's not just him calling apostles, (laughs) but he's calling all types of people, students, Moms, singles, coaches, assembly line workers, doctors, lawyers, mechanics, engineers, and misguided zealots who think they're right about everything. Like Saul. Paul says, I'm a story of grace. If he had a chance to, well, who knows how long he would go on with a microphone 
You know, he would have said, I am a story of grace. No, you don't get it. I am a story of grace. I hated Christ. And now, to me, for me to live as Christ, that's it. I will do everything for him. That is God's grace. He called me by his grace. It's nothing that I've done. He entered my life. He pursued me. And I did have a responsibility, of course, to respond. But when Paul boasts, he doesn't boast in his faith or in how many churches he planted or how many particularization services he got to attend. He says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ. That's the only thing I have to boast about. No wonder he says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because all that pride and the smug self-righteousness that just is kind of sitting in us is laid aside when we look at the cross and understand God's grace. Paul's literally blinded. He's knocked to the ground. And Jesus addresses him personally and directly. In verse 4, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I mean, most of you recognize this. Saul was after Jesus' disciples, not Jesus himself. Jesus so identifies with his followers that to persecute them is to persecute him. And that's incredible intimacy and closeness and tenderness and identification. This, this Christ is no distant king ruler from afar or cosmic God who just doesn't care. On the contrary, he's the shepherd who draws near and he's the brother at our side. Perhaps that is what shaped some of Paul's imagery later of the church being called the body of Christ. Each member connected to the other. We're in union with Jesus and we're in union with each other. The language of brother and sister, that's family language. It's the language that we see in the next section as well with an otherwise unknown person, Ananias. Not the Ananias of last week. Okay, the guy was dead. <laughs> you can listen to last week's message on that. a different, different Ananias who's, who's coming to grips with this change in Saul and he's a little bit weary and wary <laughs> of it. And what, what we see then, and this is just a shorter treatment of these next verses in, in verses 10 through 19, is that a small yes can make a big difference in God's kingdom. I didn't mean those two to come up together, but you can read ahead if you want. In verse 10, we see in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Most people have heard of Saul. But what's striking here is how God involves this, other un, uh, you know, this otherwise unknown individual named Ananias. The Lord calls to him in a vision, and Ananias says, yes. So God calls out, and he says, Yes. It's a great summation of what it means to be a disciple. That's the posture of the heart. Yes, Lord? What, what, what do you want? How do you want me to be of use to you? How can I serve you? And that sounds great until he asks something that's not very comfortable, um, which in verse 11 is very unsettling. Hey, go find Saul. You know that guy who's on the road to kill you? You go to him. So, so what? I don't think I heard you there again, too. I mean, Saul, he's just, he's a bully, and he's got resources to, to make other people suffer. I had a bully growing up, a kid named Matt Campbell, who hit me three times, three separate occasions. Uh, because I was, and I, I mean, I wasn't a particularly brave individual, necessarily, but... 
I didn't like him picking on other people. So I put myself between him and other people, and I suffered for it three times. And I was a, you know, I was kind of a pacifist by nature. I didn't, I'm more of a lover than a fighter. So I never really retaliated. But I can guarantee I wasn't really running to his house to say, hey, what's up? You want to hang out after those experiences? And we all tried to avoid him or getting him upset. It's nothing compared to this. He's come to arrest us, Ananias says, but the Lord tells him, go. And that phrase comes several times in here, go, go, go. It's just echoing the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 before he is, uh, rises into heaven. Go. That's your task. Make disciples. And that same thing happens here with Ananias, go. Ananias goes to the house, and this is, to me, part of what's so amazing about this text. He places his hands on Saul, which is intimate and kind. I mean, this is an enemy of the church, and he shows him kindness and intimacy. He, he approaches the one who, who, there's a risk in doing this, but he wants to show them, you're my brother. You're included in this family of God. He speaks words of blessing. What does he say to him? Brother. I mean, those must have been pretty comforting words to Saul. How am I going to be received by these people whom I'm persecuting? That took a lot of guts. Family. Ananias meets his spiritual needs and his physical needs too. He was blind, hungry, an enemy to everyone. And Ananias speaks words of affection and meets his physical needs. It's kind of mind-blowing. When you hear stories of uh, Muslims who have converted to Christianity, it's usually one of two ways. One is a vision. You hear lots of stories of Christ appearing in a vision. And the other, and you can see a lot of these through one of the ministries that we support, Call of Love. They've got access to a bunch of testimonies of MBBs, Muslim background believers. It's either that but it's usually that and this or something separate, which is love. I mean, it sounds that they were approached and embraced by somebody of the Christian faith and welcomed into their home, sat at their table. They weren't chastised or put aside, but they were approached and said, please come be with us. Well, what, what an opportunity that we have because we live, you know, in a community that has all kinds of people of different faiths, and there's plenty of Muslims. Maybe in your own neighborhood, have you ever once considered going over there and saying, look, we'd love to have you in our home and share a meal with you. I don't know how you feel about COVID at the moment, but when we have an opportunity, we'd love to do that. Please come, tell us about who you are, what brought you here, what, what do you do? Has it been hard? Has it been difficult? Do you feel like people are scared of you? And why? We're not. We want you in our home. We want to bless you. We want to share a meal with you. I mean, that, it's not much different than what Ananias was doing. This guy was explicitly on a jihad to get rid of these people. And this guy lays his hands on him and says, brother. Now, post-conversion, fine. He didn't know that. He's like, okay, Lord, I mean, sometimes the vision thing, it's a little hazy. Did you just say Saul? That guy? Yeah. And he does it. 
I'm impressed with Ananias. He's open to God's instructions. He's willing to be of use. God does not just employ the services of the great apostle who go on to write half of the New Testament and be the greatest church planter ever. He uses an obscure disciple in Damascus to be the first to show kindness to him. Someone who is willing, someone who would say, yes, Lord. John sought that quote there. Uh, great statesman of the church for so many years, uh, died a handful just a few years ago, says in order to be converted, it is not necessary for us to be struck by divine lightning or fall to the ground or hear our name called out in Aramaic any more than it is necessary to travel to precisely the same place outside Damascus. Nor is it possible for us to be granted a resurrection appearance or a call to an apostleship like Paul's. Nevertheless, it is clear from the rest of the New Testament that other features of Saul's conversion and commissioning are applicable to us today. For we too can and must experience a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Surrender to him in penitence and faith and receive his summons to service. It doesn't take that drama. You've got all kinds of, you've been doing some goad kicking. If you haven't come to faith in Christ yet, he has been pursuing you. Evidence is everywhere. Don't be stubborn. Today, if you hear his voice, right? Don't harden your heart. And Paul was stubborn, and if God can change him, and it seemed rather dramatic for sure, he can change anyone's life. He's the one who would go on to say, look, he's not done in you. He's still, he's still at work. He's the one who often would look back and tell the story again and again of what God did in his life. And those are reasons that we've been uh, taking some time really to celebrate what God has done, but what he will do next kind of culminating for us in this service this evening of looking, you know, we're looking back and signaling what God has done, but we're saying this is a new time for what's next in our lives as a church, but individually as well. Now, just real quickly, um, for, for Saul, the, the change that occurred in his life led to more than just this, but to at least three things. He had a brand new identity you know, Paul is consumed in his letters with talking about being in Christ. He calls himself a new creation. He says, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a son of God. I have a completely new idea. I've been adopted into the family of God. It's fascinating, too, when you think about Ananias' first words of brother to him and this family language. Now, Paul has a completely new identity. You hear a lot about identity these days. How do you identify? And Paul says, you want to know how I identify? I'm in Christ. That's the center of my life. Everything else is informed by that. Now, there's a lot that we could say about that, but he has a new identity. He has a new purpose. His purpose now, he sees himself as a servant, a slave, a bondservant of Christ. Where you lead, I will follow. And he's going to serve as Christ leads. That's his purpose. I mean, actually, Christ has already told him, you're going to suffer for my name. But he's willing to do it. Because his identity is wrapped up in, I am in Christ. What he wants, I will do. And there's a lot of people who don't know who they are today in terms of identity, and they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. 
And for, for Saul, he, he, he had it figured out. Like, I'm, I'm a zealous Jew. And it was redefined when he encountered God in the person of Christ. That's a new identity that Christ gives. A new purpose that he gives. And Paul also has a new destination. I said, for Paul to live as Christ. And then when he thinks about the end of his life, he says, you know what? That's a gain. To live as Christ, I'm going to spend myself for this. But when I die and breathe my last, it's only better from there. All this other stuff is just a shadow. What comes next is the substance. And the proof positive of that in the Bible and in Paul's theology is the risen Christ, the first fruit from among the dead. The, the spirit who comes as a down payment, a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What is to come comes when you breathe your last. And that's when the real substance takes place. And he says, I've got a new destination. That new destination informs my purpose and it flows from who I am. And Paul makes no qualms about it. He says, though, do you know what your destination is? If you breathe your last, the only reason I have any hope next is because I'm in Christ. And if you're not, you're standing on your own works. And he says all those things are like filthy rags compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. You cannot stand in your own righteousness. You can't do it. Which is why these words here that each of us needs that personal encounter with Christ, a recognition that we need to be in him that's where this journey starts. And we've been celebrating the way that's been the case in the lives of people throughout the Bible, but even now, in our own midst. And here's the good news. He's not done yet. My prayer and my hope is that God uses this ragtag group of people we've slapped a title on called Redeemer Church in the days ahead to continue pointing to the one the only one who can really change people's lives is Christ. It's not me, it's not you. And yet we have the opportunities to be servants of him and declare. I pray that you would be active in sharing your faith so you have a full understanding, a, a total grasp of all the good things that you've received. Let's move forward with that hope in mind as we particularize tonight and see what God is doing next. Father, thank you for Saul, uh, whose name was changed to Paul. You, some cultures actually change people's names uh, upon conversion to reflect a new life, new beginning. And that's what these encounters are all about. But the beginning is something new that's a start. It's not a finish. And I pray that we would be able, together as a community of believers, to, um, to be inspired and challenged and convicted, to have a vibrant faith. Our, our desire is to become a multi-ethnic church of influence, pursuing individual renewal, Father. Would you renew us today? Family renewal. Renew our families. City renewal. Renew this city. World renewal, Father, for the sake of the gospel. Would you change more lives and see fit to use us in the process for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.